good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We believe you're there. We can hear that you are there. Um, my name is Kate Moss. I'm a writer, and I'm lucky enough to be on the board um, of this wonderful National Theatre. And it's an enormous pleasure to be here, and so many of you being here tonight, uh, to do the very first of the platform events for Medea, which is playing here in the Olivier. Those of you who are about to see it are in for the most astonishing treat. Um, I saw it last night, and as I was uh, talking to Carrie and to Tom, um, it was one of those experiences where I heard people gasp in the audience, and at the end, on a Monday night in the heart of London in August, people were on their feet uh, for a new work that has been around for many thousands of years. So, Carrie Cracknell, it's an enormous pleasure to have you here. Um, you had an enormous hit here in the lovely shed with Blurred Lines quite recently. Um, I suppose the first question I felt sitting in the audience was, um, is Medea something that you've always wanted to do? Is it one of those things that's been ticking in your mind? Or was it one of those invitations when you suddenly thought, yes, I'd like to have a go and I've got an idea? How did it start? Um, it was a glorious invitation from Nick Heitner. Um, we had a typically efficient and kind of brilliant meeting in which he said, I'd like you to direct Medea. And I went, OK. <laughs> 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 and then I went to have a think about it and I read um, Ben's version. Ben had already spent quite a lot of time working on the version. And it struck me that he'd found a really interesting balance in the text between the poetry that the original original play has, but a sort of clarity of psychology and a modernity, I guess, in, in, the, in the language that felt really exciting. And it took me quite a while to learn to love the play. It's a sort of dark and blunt play and has a real brutality at its heart. And so I read it and I read it again and I read it again and then I sort of found it started to drip into my head um, and that's always a good sign. I started dreaming about it. Um, and what happens is you start watching films or seeing images and they start to trigger thoughts. And it's always very interesting that beginning period with a play because either you have a very direct and immediate response and you know exactly how you're going to do it or probably more interestingly, it takes time um, and so I was in a really undecided place when Tom and I started working together on, on the kind of ideas for the staging. And how long does that, how, how long a period of grace, if you like, did Nick Heitner give you to start to <laughs> let the play drip? <laughs> Are we talking two weeks? Are we talking two years? I probably had about a month of sort of, I mean, I probably told him after a couple of weeks, you know, that I was interested, but I was in New York um, working on another show. And so I sort of had time um, to, to read the play and to sort of let it seep in, I guess, and then I, uh, yeah, I think I probably got to a point where I thought I must email him and say, yeah, I'd love to direct it. But um, it was nice to start something so open with so little kind of um, pre-decided, actually, and I think Tom and I then had quite a lot to kind of to work through. And you've already um, sort of almost answered the, the, the question I think many of us who are not theatre makers want to know is that you have the director, you have obviously a, a long dead author and a new author. Um, but then the partnership that makes it come to life obviously was working with Tom. Mm. So how do you two start to make it your play and your design? I know, Tom, you've designed here before, 13, of course, many people would have seen. But obviously it sounds like that was the first creative relationship before even actors or anybody else involved. So, Tom, do you want to say a little bit about why you wanted to do it? Um, well, actually, um, we had just done uh, a production of Wozzeck at uh, English National Opera uh, the year before. So dramatic and, and epic already. Dramatic and <laughs> epic already. Carrie Cracknell all over it. Um, 
And uh, I've known Carrie for a long time, but that was the first time we actually worked together on a show, which was sort of baptism by fire in a major way. Um, Any ways that you'd like to share with us? <laughs> that sounds quite intriguing, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, just an enormous, enormous platform for, yeah. a, for a first show for a new partnership. Um, yeah. And it was, very, uh, it was a very, very short process. It was completely fly by the seat of your pants through the whole thing. Um, but at the heart of it, we m managed to find a, uh, a truth and uh, a sort of visual world that for me now has become as much carry as it is mine. And this, this sort of very much, Medea very much feels like a sort of second uh, in that kind of uh, process, I suppose. Um, so, well, you know, obviously you sort of, you, you, Carrie would like you to do Medea at the National Theatre. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay, fine, if you insist. Um, and, um, and although we had a lot more time to sort of percolate ideas with this production, which was completely necessary and, um, and really useful, um, it's... Um, it still had the kind of urgency and the sort of shorthand that we had when we when we were working on on uh, Votsek together, and I sort of th I think we sort of really struck ideas quite quickly um, because of that, that show that we just done before. So when you talk about striking ideas, which is such a sort of muscular way of thinking about it, which is rather wonderful of itself, is it a question of you, Carrie, going, you know, I have a certain sort of colour or a certain sort of ambience or a certain sort of way that I want to use this magnificent set? Or is it, she is like this, her family is like that, and I need your art to make this happen for me? Is that how it works? Or What's brilliant about Tom is that he's a dramaturg and a director in his soul as well as being a designer. So what's great is we just keep talking about the play and we read the play over and over. And Ben Power, of course, was also in this. So it was a sort of mm. three-way conversation. And one of the things we did quite early on was we read the play. And at, at the stage when Helen was cast as Medea, we asked her to just sit around a table with some other actors and we read the play. And we were struck very strongly by the human truth of this text which is two and a half thousand years old and the fact that it felt like a very contemporary divorce drama in some respects and the human element of the story was the thing that we were trying to find because as I've already described the play is blunt and violent and we know that this terrible thing is going to happen at the end of the play mm. and we were trying to break open and understand where the light was and what the kind of human interest, I guess, was at the centre of the story. So we were all trying to do that. And one of the early things that we struck on was um, an idea, I guess, about the sense that the play is happening concurrent to the wedding of Jason and Creusa, his new bride. And so we all got quite excited, I think the three of us, about this idea of, well, let's find a world for staging the wedding so that the two things are happening kind of in conflict together. And then Tom rather brilliantly suggested a film called Melancholia, a Lars von Trier film, which um, the first half of the film is all set at a very, very unhappy wedding in which the bride keeps wandering off and having baths and taking her wedding dress <laughs> off while all the guests are waiting at the dinner table for her and she's not there. And then she wanders off into the golf course in the middle of the night and comes back. And the aesthetic of that film and also the kind of emotional landscape of that film was really influential in our early work. So we're sort of all the time trying to find, I guess, together images and films and 
um, sort of representative ideas that uh, for us feel connected in some oblique or very specific way to the play and Tom's feeding that in almost as a director really in that mm. early stage mm. of the conversation um, and a lot of those visual references were very much led by his research. Tom? The reason, I think that also that because that why that film was so relevant was because um, on that first reading of the play, w w exactly as Carrie says, the divorce drama came, came r really to the fore um, but also this strong sense of magic and the necessity for magic and the other in this world, um, which is an extremely difficult thing to sort of try and negotiate. How do you have, you know, a completely psychologically accurate emotional uh, story going on stage um, in front of you, people that you can identify with, whilst also you're talking about the Golden Fleece and... Um, and so those cloaks. two, so uh, mm. from that moment, actually, those two poles, I suppose, became our kind of ping pong table that, w that we were always um, using to, to refer one idea to the other and making sure that each one kept each other in check and that you were constantly balancing those two things. I thought, I, you know, uh, not wanting to spoil anything for anybody, so we're being very careful, but I thought that that was astonishingly cleverly done. Um, the idea that magic and madness are close siblings. And so a little bit of magic and talking about magic goes with the madness that takes over any of us in the grip of an emotion. And when mm. I came out last night, um, it was just joyous to hear a couple of young women standing outside there going, well, do you think she's a witch or not? <laughs> and I thought that was a wonderful thing that had been achieved on this very <coughs> realistic set. I was fascinated by, I, I did a lot, for some reason, I always did witchcraft in history at school. It kept coming up. <laughs> it's so very good. It very is, good. yeah. And it was yeah. just something that I'd spent quite a lot of time in my childhood thinking about. And I, I'm really fascinated by this idea of, you know, through history in moments of social unrest, difficult, diffident mm. women who didn't fit were branded as witches and were, you know, were rooted out and killed. And that felt really live and in relation to the play somehow, this idea that Medea doesn't fit, she's difficult, she's awkward, she says what she thinks, she um, you know, self-names herself as old and foreign and she feels as though there are elements of her that somehow don't um, match up to sort of standards of femininity yes. and that felt really interestingly tied into a kind of history of the way that women have been treated as witches I guess mm. and so those things were very much in play in our conversation about is she magic or not? is she a witch or not? Or actually, is she just so difficult that everybody's frightened of her because they don't know what to do with her? And maybe it's just that, mm. and maybe that's enough. Mm. Um, so that was quite a kind of live conversation uh, for us. And I thought also, and I, I don't know at what point you decided to have the split stage, and of course everybody can see that, and we are sitting on some of the wedding chairs, so I feel slightly compromised by yes. being a guest now. Really um, but it was very um, effective, the idea that down here was the life that had been cast off, and up there was the new life, you mm. know, the shiny life. Mm. Um, there's one um, other thing, which again, I, if we can talk slightly obliquely so we don't spoil it for the people who have not yet seen it, but obviously one of the very big issues in any modern version of a retelling of, a, of a, an ancient Greek piece of theatre is the chorus, and who the chorus is, how they are used, um, and they were, a, a chorus like I have not seen before, but incredibly effective because they were both of us and utterly not. Now, how did you, where in your creative process between the two of you, 
did you decide how to place the chorus, how to use the chorus, who they were <laughs> going to... Oops, <laughs> obviously put a finger on a key question here. But when everybody sees it, that you will understand why I'm, you know, waffling on here because I don't want to spoil it. But mm. but it is very, it's a very strong decision you've made with the chorus. It felt interesting that once we'd set up this idea of the wedding landscape, so the wedding being the upstairs world, that the chorus in some way became representative of that. Um, and so we had this idea of them being guests at the wedding quite early on. And then it sort of evolved towards them being more like bridesmaids at the wedding. Um, and then there was a lot of trial and error in the rehearsal room, actually, if yeah. we're honest. And we yeah, knew that we wanted them to sing. Uh, we had Goldfrapp writing the music and we knew that they would, we'd cast them with that in mind as strong singers. We knew that we wanted them to dance. So we'd again cast them in the sort of X Factor auditions that they all went through. Um, and so we had a strong sense, you know, that we wanted the language of the chorus to have a connection to this otherworldly magic quality that Medea has, but also that the world of the play has. Um, you know, it's a world in which there are multiple gods who live very mm. close by the protagonists. It's a world in which there's a poisoned cloak. You know, it's a world in which there are potent fo forces. And, mm. um, and so the chorus, in a way, we knew needed to be an expression of that. So we were trying to, I guess, through the chorus, express what Tom's described, which is something that's psychologically rooted, but also of another world. And a lot of that was trial and error, and mm. the chorus were extraordinarily patient in rehearsals. <laughs> and I would come in every day and I'd <laughs> say, Sir Guys, <laughs> that thing we tried yesterday, um, I've slept on it and it's not quite right, and we would rework and we would rework. And, you know, and I think we would all openly say that some elements of it are more successful than others, but we were trying to find, I guess, a contemporary language for choral work, yeah. which we don't have in our theatre culture in the same way. We wanted it to feel related to the Greek and related to that idea that there were a group of people from a community singing and dancing and telling a story and commenting on that story, but we also wanted it to feel very modern. So at, at one point, you know, it was trying to be lots of things and we've sort of navigated that, I think. I think the reason why it feels so three-dimensional as well is that you don't, you know, don't go into the process, and what's brilliant about what Carrie, Carrie's done with it is that you don't go into the process going, this is what Medea is, this is who she is, there you go, Helen. You just don't do that. And so, but but the in the, to a certain extent, people sort of feel that, you, you know, this is what I want to do with the chorus, bang. And holding your nerve was exactly the right thing to do with it mm. because, you know, working it through in the room, as you would with any other of the lead actors, um, suddenly brings a whole new um, uh, dimension to the mm. to the chorus. I think. And, uh, and one of the contradictions, um, it, it seemed to me, was that, of course, Medea is one of the great tour de force for female theatre actors, um, and one of the best roles. But at the same time, it is an ensemble piece, mm -hmm. um, not just the chorus, but actually there's a lot of other characters who absolutely affect. Um, and what I felt had been achieved with the design here was that it felt very big and very intimate, so that things could happen out of sight, but yet we, the audience, could choose to see them or not. Yeah. And I wondered if that had also been part of the way that you've stretched the space here. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, th th the first thing to say is it's really hard to not make anything feel big in here. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been told, Tom. Pretty big. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, you're constantly sort of wrestling with um, pulling things forward for intimacy and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, then, and then sort of re and reducing the, the, the play. 
Um, I mean, it's it's based on an amphitheater, as we all know, and it's great for oratory and for you know someone standing in the middle of the stage and just sort of talking. Um, but what we wanted to do with the with the play was not that. Um, so it was it was a really delicate sort of balancing act, and we were kind of you know quibbling over a, a meter here and a meter there for absolutely ages. <laughs> um, but I think the thing that um, the thing that's really helped is th is this um, central uh, dance floor, um, <laughs> which uh, sort of subtly just closes the the mm. the action down and um, and you have an arena, I suppose, without it feeling like it's too constricted. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean it's. You're pleased with it. it. Is, yeah. <laughs> no, do you do you actually so do that? I mean, it, it's a different thing as a as a novelist because you you don't have an object; you have loads of them. And mm. if you're lucky, sometimes you see them in somebody's hands, and that's yeah. good. But here, do you look at this and think we made this? Is that what it feels like, or is it always the little uh, stuff? I don't. I find, in on honesty, the um, action of sharing the work really exhilarating but quite punishing quite exposing mm. because you um for me i think the art of you know that the sort of craft of making of course always thinking about an audience and trying to understand what that relationship might feel like and especially during the previews when we show the show each night and then we rework it in the afternoon that's for me the absolutely thrilling part you know mm. trying to kind of carve out what the piece might be but I find the action of looking at it through an audience's mm. eyes very, very exposing. And that never goes away. And I find coming back during the run, I'll watch the show again tonight or tomorrow after a few weeks. And it's, it's hard because oh yeah. you sort of craft something that in a model box where Tom and I are sat in Tom's front room looking at this tiny model is completely within your realm. And of course, then what you do is you kind of hand it over rightly to a wonderful group of actors and stage managers who then maintain the production and breathe their own life into it. So I don't know. I think maybe some directors are different, but there's never a moment where I sit back and I think, oh, you know, it's so good. It never happens. It really should, if well, you don't mind me saying. <laughs> but I think like it's, it's over it's then it's at that point. Um, yeah. You know, if you, it's a case of live by the sword, die by the sword, and I think our, our process is such that it's never fulfilled. You know, no. it, it, because it's a conversation. And this whole idea of this is what the production is trying to say is a misnomer because there are so many voices within this company and this team that are we're, we're, we're debating and we're challenging all the way through. And I think that's sort of clear in what we've got. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it offers up a lot of stuff and a lot of different opinions and a different, different directions. And so it's a conversation. And so mm. you can never really have an end of a conversation. Mm. And so I think, you know, to a certain extent, Carrie's, you know, Carrie's right that it's sort of you come back and you sort of go, oh, that bit. <laughs> <laughs> and we, the audience, are active participants mm. too because we all see with our eyes. Mm -hmm. um, and the, uh, for me, the joy of live theatre is the fact that we can choose where to look. Mm. Uh, you don't always look at the person speaking. Yeah. You know, it's up to you. Um, when you are not thinking about how to put the actors together, um, but do you, as you work together in a creative sense, then start to have a very strong idea of the sort of 
woman you want to play Medea, the sort of man you want to play Jason. For those people who haven't seen it, there is some good and very strong and interesting cross-casting mm. decisions um, in terms of age and race and all of those things. At what point creatively does that come into the design and into the creative image that you have of the play? Because it's very marked, I would say, in this production. Mm. I think casting for me is a sort of expression of taste and an expression of interest as a director. So there are certain actors who are remarkable, but who I don't find myself drawn to. Um, because you don't feel your work well together or their, their, their tone is not yours? The tone is different. Yeah. And I think what's remarkable about Helen and, and actually Helen was very much Wendy Spawn's sort of first impulse, um, who's the head of casting here. And as soon as she said it, Ben and I were in the room, we went, yeah, completely great. And then we said to Tom and he went, yeah, you know, and it was just instinctive. Yeah. Yeah. And then we had that happy, happy thing where she could do it, which mm. doesn't yes. always happen. Um, what's interesting for me about Helen is she has a combination of absolute specificity, moment to moment. She always knows what she's doing to the other actors on stage, but she has a scale and a confidence to play this big, big arena, this big space, and she's played here before, and um, so that's really useful. But I also believed, when I thought about Helen, that she could have this otherworldly mm. quality. She's at once very modern, and she feels very contemporary, but she also has this sort of bigger psychic space in a way, and you could believe that she was magical. Mm. And that's quite unusual. Yeah. So it was a sort of happy moment where we thought that's the right casting. Um, and then the rest of the company, in a similar way, we were looking for people who um, combined that quality of a sort of modernity and a, a, a sort of accuracy in terms of psychology, but who would be confident to play this, this mm. bigger space. Yeah. and who we felt could match that quality in Helen as well. Um, and so that tends to be probably predominantly more a conversation that I would have with Ben during the development stages, but would keep talking to Tom and Tom might go, oh, yeah, mm, not quite really how I'd imagined it. Or <laughs> no, no, yeah, I completely understand that. And of course it keeps feeding in as each person is cast through the design process. Well it feeds into what we're then there was the really doing interesting together. Because in the, in the first read through that we did, um, the, 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 the nurse was the impossibly old woman um, and I went away from that read-through, spinning out this entire sort of American Gothic kind of forest, full forest sort of cabin in the woods type. <laughs> I'm sort of liking thing. that. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> Not as much as this. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, and then you know, when suddenly as soon as that changes, and Michaela Cole is cast as the nurse, it's a completely different. You know, you're really pulling into the domestic, and you're really pulling into sort of much more a sort of edgy, um, uh, modern. Um, world and it really so it, the casting decision completely inform where the design goes. Yeah. Um, I think everybody will agree that it's been the most astonishing insight into what is a vivid and beautiful and magnificent production. Um, there are, this is the first, as I said, of four platform events, um, but it just remains for me to say to those of you who have not yet seen it, you have a treat in store, although of a slightly gothic and macabre <laughs> nature. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, could you please thank Carrie Cracknell and Tom Scott. Thank you.